going to share a few examples here off the top. And uh, as always, when I share an example from my life, I'm doing that hopefully as a way to invite you to consider your life. Of course, this is not about me, but um, I shudder to think what would happen if I began using examples from your life as a hook to the sermon. So uh, as I give you examples from my life, feel free to imagine some of the corollaries in your own. I find that uh, <clears throat> I have a bit more experience at 45 than I did at 25. So I'm 45 now. I've been loving Jesus since I was 11. So that's, that's a long time to be walking with the Lord. And uh, I have been pastoring full-time since I was 26. Well, in fact, since I was 19, I was a youth pastor from 19 to about uh, 23 or 4, and then a full-time senior pastor from 26 on. And so that's a long time to walk with the Lord, and I find that things are different at 45 than they were at 25. This uh, perspective that you gain with age and experience is really nice when it comes to dealing with difficulty. Because when you face difficulty, as you've aged and experienced life a little bit, you tend to come to that difficulty with this kind of perspective. Well, this is going to suck, but it's going to end well. Can you relate? You're like, this is going to be not so much fun, but I know from experience that it's going to end well. For example, I just recently finished writing my second book, and then I took a day off, and the day after, I started writing my third book. And there's a very interesting juxtaposition between finishing a book and starting a book. Finishing a book is elation. It is so fun. You kind of drive around the city in like a fog of happiness for at least six hours. If you're me, you go and buy yourself a milkshake as a congratulations. You're like, I finished the book, I get to drink chocolate from a straw. So it's a really nice moment. And then you take a day off, and the next day you start your next book. And that blank <coughs> screen as you write chapter one and then nothing else, is absolutely horrifying. If you've ever faced the blank page, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I have learned now, because this is the third time around, that there is a milkshake waiting at the other end. <laughs> this is going to be difficult, but it's going to end well. This uh, past November, I did my very first deadlift of my entire life. I'm training with my young son, Sam, for this year's football season. He'll be going to grade 11, and we're trying to get him strong enough to destroy every other player in D10. And so we've been lifting weights like it's a religion, and uh, so I thought, well, we should probably start doing some deadlifts. I've never done a deadlift, true story, in my whole life. I played university football, never did a deadlift, just never did. So we started this November with our very first deadlift, and 135 pounds felt like we were lifting the world. It was absolutely brutal. If you've ever done a deadlift, you know that you often scrape your shins, and I now have the scars on my shins to prove that I've done a deadlift, and I would just bleed, and it was messy, and I was terrible at it. So that was November. But uh, just last week, Sammy and I both did 275, and we're on our way to 300. And so you're thinking, wow, this is getting easier the longer we do it. It's really hard to begin with, but it's going to And I'll make sure that we post a little video the first time we do 300. And you might be thinking, 300 is light work. Well, I'm not talking to those of you who are already deadlifting 400 pounds. I'm talking to those of you who've never done a deadlift in your life. <laughs> Hard work becomes light work if you keep at it long enough. I've been married for how long, honey? 23 years? 23 years. 23 years will give you such a crick in the neck. <laughs> That's an Aladdin reference for those of you who don't like Disney. But when she comes home grumpy now, I know how to deal with it. You're thinking, Nikki's never grumpy. Once in a blue moon, she comes home grumpy. And a grumpy wife used to send me into fits of nerves. 
But now that I've walked with her 23 years, I know how to handle her in her very occasional grumpiness. Hard work becomes light work the more you do it. This is going to suck, but it's going to end well. About a month ago, I sensed that we're entering a new growth phase here at church. And we are. We had like 23 people at our house for a newcomer's night recently. You're like, 23 people I've never met before. It's just crazy. And what's really fun for me as a pastor who's been pastoring since I was 26 is I know what to do now with the growth curve. I know what to focus on, and I know what to ignore. The things that used to give me fits no longer do. This is going to be difficult, but it will end well. Here's the point. Um, difficulty isn't quite as difficult once you've endured the process a few times. Why is that? Because you've learned to embrace the reckoning, like in Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Jacob said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me... If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so he may assault us and fall upon us to make us slaves and seize our donkeys. So they went up <clears throat> to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. 
And when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed their feet, and we had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to the grounds to him. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his other brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. What a moment. What a moment. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. I still remember as a boy in Sunday school, coming to this story for the first time. And uh, I grew up in Pentecostal Sunday school, and so we always had flannel graph Sunday school. If you don't know what that is, it's your loss. It's okay. It's pretty cool. And usually there was like a picture book that the teacher would use in addition to the flannel graph. A flannel graph is like a, it's like a board with flannel and then little cutouts of flannel so that it would stick to the board, and the teacher would kind of build the story as they told it to you. And then in the little picture book of Joseph in this scene as he sees Benjamin for the first time in 20 years, bursting into tears. I remember it cut me to the heart as a young boy of six. And my eyes began to well up. Even at six, I was moved by the grace that is on display in Genesis chapter 43. It's a total pleasure to get to preach this to you this morning. When I uh, wrote it, it just rocked my world. Here's Keystone Habit number seven. Embrace the reckoning because it's coming. You'll see the definition for a keystone habit on screen. Keystone habit number seven. We're halfway through the series. Crazy, right? Fourteen habits. Habit number seven. Embrace the reckoning because it's coming. You could teach this habit with one ten-point stream of consciousness statement. Life is heavy. It goes on even in disaster. And it will push you to the edge. And if you're feeling why me or blindsided by life or that it's all so unknown... Take responsibility and stop delaying. And if you're going to have to walk the long road anyway, you might as well set yourself up for success. You might as well think positive. Get back up and count on grace. And don't let fear stop you because it will always be with you. Explain yourself as best you can. Make it right and keep your eyes peeled for angels because you're about to be guests in a very nice house. And if that kind of grace doesn't move you to tears, I don't know what will. But if hearing all this, you feel like it's all just a little bit too good to be true, you're finally starting to understand this story. Point number one, life is heavy. It goes on even in disaster and it will push you to the edge. I get this from verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. You know what this is in Hebrew? Now the famine was heavy in the land. Veha'ev, veha'ev kaved. It's probably ra'av. Veha'ra'av kaved, and the hunger was heavy. Kaved is the word for heavy. Also the word for glory, by the way. 
because glory is heavy. Kola kavod, all glory to you. Congratulations. Kavod, kaved. And the famine was heavy in the land. Remember our story. The patriarch and his family were hungry because there was a famine. The sons of the patriarch went south to Egypt to get some food in Genesis 42. They brought the food back. The patriarch's family ate the food. All the food is gone. Now they're hungry again. Life goes on. Don't miss the fact, because these chapters are juxtaposed, 42-43, that we're talking here a seven-year famine. So there may have been years that went by between chapter 42 and chapter 43. At least as long as it would have taken for Jacob's family to consume all the food that his sons brought back from their first trip to Egypt. Life goes on. If you feel like life is heavy, um, it is. Just get used to it. Do you see the recurring trouble here in the patriarch's life? Life is good, famine comes, life is bad. They go south, they bring food back, life is good. They eat all the food, life is bad. Don't miss that pattern. So in verse 2, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. Let us point out the fact that Jacob did not want to send them to Egypt. Why? Because he knew that they would have to take Benjamin with them. How do we know this? Because last chapter, that's how the chapter ended, with them giving him the report of their first trip to Egypt. Where the man said to them, Bring your brother, or else you won't see me again. So now sometime later, Push comes to shove, and Jacob is forced to send his sons back south for a little more food. He didn't want them to go. He's afraid to send Benjamin. Don't miss the subtext here. I bet you Jacob was waiting that the famine would abate before he got pushed to the edge. He's playing the odds. Maybe I won't have to send Benjamin down. Let's ration this food. Let's make it last as long as we can. Here's the point for you. It's not if life will push you to the edge, it's when. The reckoning is coming. You better learn to embrace it. So this is the reckoning that comes. From this moment, we get the title for this sermon. This is the reckoning that Jacob has been avoiding. And here it comes. There is no escape. The reckoning is coming. You better learn to embrace it. Friend, there is trouble even in Oz. There are garbage dumps even in paradise. Have you ever walked off the resort grounds into the villages that surround your shiny, happy place in the sun? If you've ever vacationed in the third world, what is the first thing you see the moment you step off the resort grounds? You see garbage everywhere. If it's really the third world, go out snorkeling and dive beneath the shiny turquoise surface. And what will you find? Dead reefs. Why? Because there is garbage, even in paradise. Life is hard. Might as well get used to it. Also, point number two, don't let a um, why-me outlook creep in when life blindsides you. Or when the pressure of the unknown just won't quit. I get this out of verse 6 and 7. <laughs> Jacob's whining. He pulls a, a father from my big fat Greek wedding right here. Why? It was a very Jewish father. Why? Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another son? Why, oy vey, why me? 
So look, if even the patriarch fell into a why me moment, <laughs> don't be surprised if it shows up in you. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> you are not meant to be Supergirl. You are not meant to be the Hulk. <laughs> Why? Jacob is whining about an event in the past that he can neither change nor whose consequences he can control. What's that movie, Jordy, with De Niro that you just saw? The Irishman. Anybody see The Irishman? What's De Niro saying the whole time? It is what it is. It is what it is. I'm sorry, but it is what it is. Right? That's life. It is what it is. There is a difference. Here's the point. There's a difference between being troubled and fretting. Okay? Trouble comes to everyone. God's friends are learning not to fret. <laughs> As we say in my household, a big difference. Big difference. Yes, life may blindside you. Verse 7, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Thank God for Genesis 43. Don't you feel bad when you get blindsided by life, like somehow it's your fault? Could I get a witness? Thank God I get to preach this again in just a minute. Can't wait to tell another full room. It's not your fault. That's the definition of blindsided. A car comes that you don't see coming. Ah! Yet somehow you feel guilty like it's your fault. So much of life is unknown. Stop torturing yourself about it. As we also like to say in my family, woosah. Sounds good, Todd. How do I do it? Um, point number three. <laughs> Take responsibility and stop delaying. Take responsibility and stop delaying. This chapter is flabbergasting. Every point follows every point, and I didn't make any of it up. The symmetry is just there. Take responsibility and stop delaying, I found in verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 9, Judah says, I will be a pledge for his safety. You ever found yourself deadlocked? What breaks a deadlock? Somebody takes the first step. Somebody takes responsibility. That's what breaks a deadlock. Deadlock is only solved when somebody agrees to put their butt on the line, just like Jesus did for you. It's a problem, see? God is holy, cannot tolerate sin in any way, yet he made us to be his friends forever, but we fell into sin when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden. What's a God to do? Got these people you made to be your friends, yet they're sinful. They won't stop sinning, in fact. And your holiness and your justice requires that you punish it. So really, you should just destroy them all. But that'd be kind of dumb, because you fashioned their first father with your bare hands. From the dust of the earth. And you love them. So what do you do? <laughs> I could preach today, in the fullness of time. You send your one and only begotten son to suffer and die in their place for their sins. You place the penalty for the sins of the world on the shoulders of your son. 
and you punish him in their place. Because he's fully man, the sin can stick to him. And because he's fully God, he's big enough to bear it all. And as he hangs there, filthy from the sin of your creatures, you turn your back on him, causing him to scream, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you watch him die. You're so upset about it that darkness covers the land and the earth quakes. And as they bury him in the ground, I bet you not a sound is uttered in all of heaven. And you wait. Through what will become known as Holy Saturday, you wait. And in the darkness, you wait. And then you wait. And that first Easter Sunday morning, you wake your son back up. And he opens his eyes and he breathes again. And a whole new way is ushered into the history of the universe as God the Son rises again from death. It's the reason I'm a Christian that God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, takes responsibility for what was mine to bear. Nothing changes till someone takes responsibility. Is it accidental, do you think, that it is Judah through whom the messianic line of kings will come who steps up? I think not. Judah steps up, says... I'll take responsibility. You want to lead? Take responsibility. When? Right now. Verse 10. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. There are real consequences to procrastination. We could have returned twice already. Look, if you dilly-dally too much, you'll wake up and you'll have lost a decade. I say this all the time. So here's your truism to take with you today. Once you know, go. You're welcome. Point four, if you're going to have to walk the long road anyway, you might as well set yourself up for success. Think positive, get back up, and count on grace. I get this from verse 11 and 12, 12b, 13, and 14. Verse 11 and 12, he says, all right, if you're going to have to go, you might as well take a double payment. Take a present, too. Let me point out, with joy in my heart, because I love you so much, that there is a price to be paid to set yourself up for success. Did you notice that Jacob orders them to take a gift of food, even though they're starving? You think you're at the end of your rope? You're not. Pay the price. So awesome. While you're at it, make a double payment. With a positive mindset, 12B, um, perhaps it was an oversight. How great is that? Maybe it was an accident. 
It is what it is. That's a positive attitude. Pay the price with a positive attitude. You never know. Maybe the sun will come out tomorrow. Look, your life may feel like it's falling apart, but pizza is still pretty good. That's some high-level teaching right there. Am I lying or am I telling the truth? So, like, far be it for me to keep bringing it back to food. But can I just remind you what Jules read from Psalm 23? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Translation, Jesus is going to break you off a pizza pizza even in the darkness. Somebody give him praise. All right, so don't let yourself get so depressed that chocolate milkshakes stop working. And then get back up. Almost done. Verse 13. Arise, go again. Ha! I tell you, it just keeps going. It keeps going. You could make that your 2020 mantra. Arise, go again. Get back up, go again. And count on grace. Verse 14. May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. What is the definition of God Almighty here? El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean? The God who suffices. The God who is enough. May the God who is enough give you grace, give you mercy before the man. Count on grace. And point number five, don't worry if you're afraid like his brothers were in verse 18, because fear is always with us like it was always with them. When you find yourself in a tough spot, like Joseph's brothers standing before his steward in verses 19 through 22, point number six, explain yourself, do what you can to try and make it right and keep your eyes peeled for angels. You're really reaching here. I don't see any angels in the text, Todd. All right. Touche. Joseph Stewart may not have been an angel, but he talked like one. Uh, that's just some high-level preaching. What does he say to them after they explain themselves? He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Every time, almost every time, an angel shows up in the biblical story. What is the first thing the angel says to the person they just encountered? Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Somebody shout, this is what heaven says when it comes to earth. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. When heaven breaks into your life, expect peace to come and fear to leave. How will I know it's God? Peace comes. Fear leaves. You have nothing to be afraid of because, point number seven, you are about to be guests in a very nice house. That's what happens in verse 24. They invite them into Joseph's house. They give them water. They don't stop there. They give them water to wash their feet. They don't stop there. They feed their beasts of burden. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus, in John 14, 2. Let me tell you, as the worship team joins me on stage, how your story ends if you belong to Jesus. You want to know how your story ends if you belong to Jesus? Here's how it ends. Woo! Woo, I got to shout. Woo! Here's how your story ends if you belong to Jesus. You, at rest, all cleaned up in God's house. 
And if that point number eight doesn't move you to tears like it did Joseph in verse 30 when grace came back into his life, I don't know what will. And if point number nine, you still feel like all of this is just somehow too good to be true, like they must have felt in verse 33 as he sat them in order from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at one another in amazement thinking, how does he know our birth order? They're amazed. It's amazing. If that's how you feel, you're starting to get the hang of this. Because when God steps in, amazing things happen. Life is heavy. It goes on. And when you find yourself at the edge, oh, there you find the beginning of God. And instead of, why me? You start thinking, yes, he chose me. And though you still get blindsided from time to time, you know that you're fully known by God, so the unknown doesn't cripple you like it used to, so you start finding it easier and easier to start taking responsibility and stopping procrastinating. And though the road is long, you're learning how to set yourself up to succeed by thinking positive and getting back up and counting on grace so fear doesn't stop you. You do your best to make it right when you can while watching for God to step in because you know your destination before you arrive and that kind of grace keeps making you cry because it's all just too good to be true except it's not it's just about right because you're finally starting to understand this story a story that ends for joseph and his brothers in genesis 43 34 with a dinner party and a story which ends for us at the wedding feast of the lamb in revelation 19 like i said this might suck for a minute but it's going to end well.